with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done By Law. 6 p.m. Tuesdays. It's five o'clock on Friday afternoon. My name's Jacob, here with you on Community Radio Station 3CR, and this is a Friday Rave. Yeah, this is Jacob, live again, in the studios of 3CR on beautiful Smith Street with a Friday Rave, another Friday Rave, and... First of all, I want to say thanks for the forbearance last week as I did to rave with a couple of pre-records from John Shipton over the phone from the cabin of the stage truck we were setting up for the No Extradition Rally for Julian Assange. And the rally went off well, even though we never had very many numbers. People just, as I said, you won't go there. People won't come up to, to a rally to support Julian because it's not flavour of the month, I guess. Um, but still, we put in the great rally and the... Logistics were good. Then there was another one on the Sunday with the Socialist Equality Party having a little march through the city. And then all this week, actually, until last night, um, some good people set up a picket at the UK consulate on Collins Street so just to keep it happening. And um, so the the campaign continues, I've got to say. And I also want to say, I've got to say, actually, Thanks for to all the listeners um, who subscribed and um, nominated the Friday Rave as the um, program they wanted to support with their subscription on Community Radio 3CR. Some of the people I don't even know by name, um, but you know who you are. Um, so thank you. Um, yeah, thank you so much. Now... It's really hard because today I was sitting down trying to make some notes about what I was going to say about the trial of Julian Assange. It's happening in Belmarsh as we speak. And there is so much to it that I made copious notes all in point form like I like I sometimes do. And I make notes because on something like this because I don't want to be accused of factual errors. It's important when we're talking about things that happen like this, that, you know, it's okay to... I don't mind. I admit quite freely saying that my politics may be accused of being wrong from time to time, not by me, but I can understand that there is a different position and people have a different position to me and all that. that's all well and good. Some of the things I infer um, might be wrong from time to time, but I always try to make sure that there are no factual errors. And so that's why I was um, spending so much time making notes. But then I was reading through the notes, having got here and talking to a few friends who called in. <clears throat> and um, 
I had to admit, I don't know where to start with this one. There is so much going on that I don't know where to start. And I guess I should start, as I sort of did, but I'll repeat it now. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. That's the point. What we're dealing with is a total lack of respect for the law. Not by us, mob, but by the prosecution service, by the Crown prosecutors and by the British justice system. Um, look, let me start off by telling you another little story, right? Some of you folks might know that on a Wednesday night, even though I missed the other night, you can usually find me with my son Arlo and his mates, um, g'day Max, g'day Oscar and co, at the Retreat Hotel for Pumpy's Pub Quiz. It's a bit of a thing I have with my son. We're both into trivia. And indeed, when he was growing up, um, he and I spent many hours through his life doing puzzles and watching cringeworthy, mainly British quiz shows. And one of the strangest ones was one called Eggheads. So I'm gonna, I, I want to tell a little story from about four, maybe five years ago concerning a dweeb by the name of Joseph Connor, who goes by the moniker De Moy, which apparently means pretty in Dutch. But anyway, um, in 2000, and I'm looking at me note, 15, Connor published an autobiography in which he writes about a time in Amsterdam where he punched a bloke and threw him into the canal. I might have killed him, he wrote. I might have killed him. Now, there are a few people murdered this way in Amsterdam, so so much so, in fact, that a bloke called Eric Slot put together a study he called the Murder Atlas, which he studies unsolved murders, both current and historical. He believes the victim was likely to be a bloke called Norbert Dictor, who drowned after being punched and thrown into the canal at that time. Now, the Dutch government wanted to question this Connor bloke over it, but he wasn't forthcoming, possibly because he was um, also being investigated for sexual assault charges at the time. Anyhow, the Dutch government issued an arrest warrant and he was subsequently arrested by the Metropolitan Police and brought before the beat for an extradition hearing. Now, you'd think that if a bloke wrote about possibly murdering someone, gave the date, then an academic researcher provided the likely victim. If the Dutch police wanted to question him, but he was being evasive, that would be a pretty good case for extradition, wouldn't it? Let the Westminster Court, the judge ruled that he was not to be extradited. They let him off. And why do I mention this? Because it's the same friggin' judge sitting on Julian's extradition trial this week. Vanessa Baratzer. How do you say her name? Baratzer. Baratzer. That's by the by. And we can't know all of the ins and outs of a case from six years ago. I only raise it because as I was looking around trying to get my head around this judge, I couldn't find much else. And I, quite frankly, as I said, didn't know where to start. But we can have a look <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> at some of the shenanigans taking place in London this week. Because when I talk, I'm feeling a bit down and I'm feeling a bit confused by it all. And I was just talking to a friend of mine out in the courtyard here at 3CR, um, Giselle, she's in another studio now doing something, um, and I pointed out to her that sort of I haven't felt like this since the big peace rallies in 2003. And the reason being, I guess, was that there's always some kind of axiomatic understanding. Maybe not intellectually. Maybe intellectually we know, we can understand, and we can argue that it's all fucked. 
but at least in my case, in a lot of people we know, a lot of people I know, and in our case, there was always the understanding that you had enough people on the streets and they'd have to take notice of you. And of course, at that time, we had the biggest rallies ever and they turned around that week and went ahead and invaded anyway. And it sort of feels like that too, even though intellectually... I know you don't expect justice from the Department of Justice or health from the Department of Health or education from the Department of Education, for Christ's sake. But I guess viscerally, in your gut, there's always been some kind of, well, you can't call it anything else than belief because it certainly wasn't intellectual. A belief that if you lined your ducks up and you had all the facts and you had everything together in law, according to the law, then they would have to take notice. As I say, I understood intellectually that this was never the case. I never had an intellectual belief or respect for British justice. But there's always the idea that, you know, and we're all the products of our upbringing, that you had all your ducks in your line, you put the facts together, and um, they would have to listen. Well, that idea has been shattered viscerally as well as it was shattered intellectually many, many years ago. Um, yeah, it reminds me nothing so much of when, you know, my kid was four or five years old, three or four years old actually, and I caught him in the middle of some childhood crime and he stood there standing amongst a dross of the evidence with his arm folded and his back against the wall saying, nah, weren't me, wasn't me, nah, wasn't me, Dad. And it's just like that kind of childlike, which is fine coming from a three- or four-year-old. That's a part of a child's development where they're starting to understand in themselves that you don't know everything they know and they're seeing how far they can push that. That's fine, but not when it happens in a British court, in any court of law, let alone this one where the stakes are so high. Now... The extradition trial is taking place at Westminster, but it's not taking place at Westminster Court. It's still technically at Westminster, but it's been moved to a court adjoined to the Belmarsh Prison, a courthouse specifically designed to keep people away. One of Julian's supporters, in fact, inquired about access, was told by a court official that the, he had to understand that the court was a counter-terrorism court whatever that means. Even though, as I say, it's technically being held at Westminster as a Westminster trial. Now, while he's in this terrorist court, Julian is being held in a box of bulletproof glass at the back of the court, where, as he put it, he's as much a participate in the hearing as a spectator at Wimbledon. It came out during, you know, he's... Is at the back of the court. Anyway, it came out during the first day of the trial also that he was strip-searched totally. Totally naked, that is. And a strip-search at Belmarsh Prison, what we've learnt from other instances and other people, is totally naked, palms against the wall. Why would that need to happen? Twice. His cell was searched on the day before the trial. He was then strip-searched in a holding cell at the court. 
one of five different holding cells he was shuffled between on the first day. How is it supposed to be able to receive anything that would warrant another strip search? It was done purely to intimidate him and try to break his spirit, which is the underlying theme of the case against him. They even took his court documents so that he couldn't review his notes, the notes. It's done to intimidate and try to break spirits, not just his, but everybody else's. On the second day of the trial, Kristen Herfensen, who was in the studio with me only a couple of months ago, um, talking about things, the editor-in-chief of WikiLeaks, heard his name called and title. Kristen Herfensen, the editor-in-chief of WikiLeaks, he went and made himself known and they told him he was banned from the court that day. After it caused that much of a kerfuffle that half an hour later or so, I think it was, they let him in. They said they let him in, and primarily because um, John Shipton was there in an act of great solidarity, um, said that he and the family wouldn't go in unless Kristen was allowed in as well. Um, after half an hour or so, they let Kristen in, and when asked why, he said, oh, it was a case of mistaken identity. They thought it was a queue jumper. Now, how can you call a bloke by his name and even pronouncing it correctly, better than I do, and his title, his occupation, and then claim that it was a case of mistaken identity. It's bullshit. It's a show trial. The opening remarks of the prosecutor, James Lewis, were actually addressed not to the judge, but to the media. He actually said on two occasions that he was addressing the media. He said that he was repeating things to make sure that the media got it right. Now, according to Craig Murray, who's a um, former British diplomat himself and a whistleblower, um, who's been reporting for the court each day, the first hours of the prosecutor's submission um, was about differentiating Assange and the rest of the media in an effort to drive a wedge. Lewis went as far as reading media articles condemning Assange to show that the government views the mainstream media in a different light to, to WikiLeaks. The subtext, subtext, of course, is, don't worry, these kind of charges could never be applied to you. Now, remember, this was in no way a rebuttal to a statement by the defence, but the opening argument, the opening argument, a political argument, if ever there was one. And pre-prepared printouts and um, files of this address were then provided to the media, electronic files, so that they can copy and paste. And that's what they did. The trouble with all that, though, is that later on in the morning, um, his claim that they couldn't be, that they could not be used against the media, he had to admit that they, in fact, could be. That was about his whole opening address about how he hurt people and all the rest of it. He then closed by claiming, and this is the clincher, that even if the extradition process had been abused, coming very close to admitting that it had been, then the court would still have to rule in favour of extradition. He said, in fact, that the court had no decision to make, that it was a done deal, and further, that the Human Rights Act and freedom of speech were completely irrelevant, quote-unquote, in the proceedings. 
And that's true because Pompeo, when he was um, in charge, the Attorney General, whatever the hell he was over in the USA, um, he claimed that when um, Julian Assange is brought to the United States for trial, he wouldn't be eligible for any um, any of his First Amendment rights. Now, how could that be? I'm just trying to find... I've, I've got that page open in the browser in front of me. Um, and it was in an affidavit presented by the US to the court that they do not consider foreign nationals to have First Amendment protection. Now, just think of that. At the same time, the US government is chasing journalists all over the world. They claim they have extra, you know, territorial reach, pandemic reach, I think is the buzzword these days. They've made the decision that all foreign journalists have no protection under the First Amendment of the United States. This is about press freedom. Anyway, Assange's lawyer, on the other hand, Edward Fitzgerald, opened by raising the point that it was a political case and therefore excluded under the US-UK extradition treaty. He raised the issue of the US government spying on Assange's meeting with his legal team, which should, on its own, make the whole trial invalid. Anyway, if you're interested in the whole case, you can have a read of the opening uh, of the opening summary of the defence case, at least, at um, www.donextraditeassange.com. I um, can't go into all the ins and out of it. It's already 19 past five here at Community Radio. Three, eight, 19 past five here at Community Radio 3CR. Broadcasting 855 on your AM dial through all the W's at 3cr.org.au through the um, wonderful worldwide weird web. And um, let me think, um, on 3CR Digital, the digital radio. And I'm going to jump forward for a moment now <coughs> to the end of the second day of the trial where the judge declared that in res- Judge Vanessa Baratza, let's never forget her name, folks. Judge Vanessa Baratza. All right. Uh, in response to the defence's quoting of the extradition treaty, um, of its mention of um, political exclusions, she said that that was meaningless, as while it was indeed mentioned in the treaty, it was not included in the Act, meaning, in fact, that the treaties are worthless, and further, that the British government, according to Breitzer, made the decision, obviously was the word she used, made the decision so that it could include political trials in the extradition laws. Now, the extradition was asked for under the treaty. There's an extradition act, but the act only applies to countries where the United Kingdom has bilateral treaties for extradition. Therefore, they refer to the extradition treaties, and the extradition treaty says it doesn't apply to political um, political cases. Now, that's obviously there so that the United States can call anything that wants political and their diplomats and soldiers and everything um, have a free reign. But nonetheless, according to Baratza, um, that was a particular specific decision on the government's part. Let me say, what else can I talk about? You know, when Ed Fitzgerald raised the issue of Julian being strip-searched twice and moved between holding cells as well as having his court documents taken away from him, 
and he asked her to do something about that. Um, the judge replied that had nothing to do with the court and suggested that, um, that they make a complaint to the prison authorities. Now, Fitzgerald argued it was common practice for a judge to make requests of prison services in cases where the conduct of the trial would, was being affected. But the judge claimed to have no knowledge of any such practice and suggested that defence provide her with case law on the issue. It's even harder to believe is that the prosecution lawyer, James Lewis, supported Fitzgerald Innes, but Baratza was not to be moved. Basically, given the prison authorities carte blanche to continue abusing Julian's human rights. There are just too many issues to raise, but there's a couple of things I want to bring to your attention. I've mentioned um, Chris Heffernson um, being um, denied denied access. Um, what else is in? Look, I know none of that goes to the actual legal arguments, but a half-hour radio show is not the place. What I'm trying to do here is get across the lengths that the British justice system are going to to ensure that defence team are hassled at every turn, to try to impress on you that this is not a fair trial. And for those who are interested in chapter and verse, I recommend craigmurray.com. Just have a read through that, and of course, Caitlin Johnson, but chapter and verse, craigmurray.com. And one last point um, about the proceedings I will raise is that the defence team requested Julian be allowed to sit with his lawyers during court so that he could more easily participate, which is, after all, common practice. Judge Baratza denied this, citing health and safety. She said she didn't want to put the public at risk and she didn't have the wherewithal to make a risk assessment. Can you believe this? The judge is citing... You know, I, I could understand that this court was built for murderers and terrorists. I can understand if the defendant were some kind of hulking, physically evil or, you know, capable of hurting anybody physically with their bare hands. But this is a computer nerd who's sick as a dog who has fallen asleep for parts of it because he's so unhealthy because of the way the prison authorities are treating him. The judge, Vanessa Baratza, um, said that she, she couldn't make a risk assessment and that Group 4, you know, the private security guard provi- um, that provided the, um, the guards, private security firm, you know, the same ones who provided guards for Australian concentration camp. It was up to Group 4 to make the call. Anyway, what could I say? In making my notes, as I said to you to start with, and it was too much to try to analyse it all. So check out craigmurray.com. Also, next Tuesday at 4pm, I'll be back on 3CR speaking with Jen Bartlett on Tuesday home time here on 3CR. So maybe we'll have a bit more time to go into some details there. And look, I'm going to close by saying I've said time and time again on this show, and I'll continue saying it, that the best way to support Julian Assange at this stage is to make sure his work continues. While it's obvious that we have to focus on the Kafkaesque trial that he's going through and the abuse he's going through in relation to this whole show trial, remember the reason they're doing this is to try to stop the light being shone into the darker crevices of capitalism, war crimes. And that work must continue, whatever the outcome for Julian. 
So today I also want to mention about the Inspector General of the Australian Defence Force's annual report, which was tabled in Federal Parliament on Tuesday. In the report, in the couple of minutes I've got left, he spoke about an ongoing investigation into 55 cases of unlawful conduct by Australian soldiers in Afghanistan. Now, I need to point out here that this has not come about because the Australian military came clean. This came about due to the actions of whistleblowers, whistleblowers like David McBride, currently on trial for exposing war crimes in Afghanistan. The war crimes that the report tabled in Parliament are only those in Afghanistan, not Iraq, not Timor, anywhere else Australian war crimes have been alleged. It is only the ones that were uncovered by the leaks and, of course, subsequent associated ones once are investigated. You remember things like Australian SAS troops strafing a father and son in their bed as they cowered. You know, killing a kid for collecting figs for his family's breakfast then just leaving him there to die. Not even marking it not even reporting on it, not even accounting for the bullets that killed him. These are the same leaks that were a catalyst for a federal police raid of the ABC officers. These are the leaks that mean that David McBride could face the rest of his life in prison, although unlike Julian, he's on bail and free to walk around Canberra and organise his defence, although that's a bloody conviction on its own, isn't it? You know, ironically, David's using Bernard Collery, who's himself on trial in the Witness K case about bugging Timor Lester cabinet meeting rooms. This is why they're doing what they're doing to Julian and to WikiLeaks, because they need to cover up their war crimes, because these crimes impact every area of our lives, every area. It even impacts the way the ABC can bring us news. It impacts the way we can walk down the street and we can walk down the street with... Um, um, sorry, I just got handed a note. OK, um, we, you know, we have concrete bollards all over Swanston Street. It's absolutely ridiculous. And these are because Australian soldiers are committing war crimes and living in a culture where they're committing war crimes and therefore, obviously, people might want to have a crack at us. When we pulled a truck up for the Assange rally on last Friday, um, police told me they'd had reports of a hostile, possibly terrorist-related truck pulling up outside the State Library. When I told him it was a protest and this is where the trucks always go, he said, I've never seen one here before. Can you believe it? The outright lies and bullshit. These war crimes, because that's why we're there. That's why we're there. Are being used to justify repression. And look, further than that, the impact it's having on Australian soldiers who are coming back with PTSD so bad, you know, that... <laughs> So many of them have joined the police force and it's one of those um, who come back from PTSD in Afghanistan at the same time these crimes were committed who had PTSD so bad that I'm sure it had an effect on his decision, on his decision to open fire on a young bloke as you lay in bed at Yundamu just a couple of months ago. Anyway... It does seem strange to me. Well, it doesn't really because I'm somewhat of a sick nihilist after all, but it should seem strange that there is more money, more time, more effort being spent 
into persecuting the people who expose the war crimes than the people who perpetrate them. Remember, not one of the soldiers exposed in the WikiLeaks collateral murder video has been reprimanded. And it's the collateral murder video which is at the centre of the US government's prosecution efforts on Julian Assange and Chelsea Manning. The trolls of Julian and Chelsea and David McBride and many others are an indication of a system on the ropes, of a system that can only maintain its hegemonic existence by committing the most egregious crimes. Maybe it's always been the case, but it seems to me that it's escalating, if not in quality, at least in quantity. Perhaps this is due to nothing more than the absolute power that modern armies' technologies make possible. But the technologies are also the underbelly of the beast. Almost counterintuitively, that's precisely why we need to redouble our efforts in exposing the crimes, in exposing the leech, in exposing, quite frankly, who's who that's screwing you. It's up to us now, not when the next stage of the trial takes place, not when the next atrocity takes place, not when the next war takes place. It's up to all of us now to do what we can to stop the system becoming a parody of the Cybermen. That's all. My name's Jacob. This has been a Friday rave. I'm going to leave you the sewer show, and I will talk to you next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.